This is Going Direct, presented by Cal Fire Local 2881, a podcast created for the Cal Fire family. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Going Direct. I'm Dee Dee Garcia, Communications Officer with Cal Fire Local 2881. I'm here with President Tim Edwards and our special guest, Dave Coker, who is President of Greensboro, North Carolina, Local 947. Good morning. Good morning, Dave. Morning, Tim. Thanks for uh, inviting me over. No, we appreciate it. I know you're out here um, by our request to help teach part of our leadership class on uh, membership activism. And so we appreciate you taking the time to fly clear across the country to spend it with us for a couple of days and taking the time to do this podcast for our members. And I think it's a great opportunity since you're here to have our members see the other side of things because California has certain um, privileges and benefits that other states may not, especially especially yours. And you come from a right-to-work state. So can you just real quick give us a little bit of background on you? Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm a, a captain on an ancient company in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, I'm a local president. I've been, been local president for about 10 years. Um, I also... Uh, uh, do organizing work for the IFF um, as part of the uh, strategic campaigns team. And so that's kind of how, you know, I ended up here with you guys this week. Um, and and really, you know, my uh, my involvement with the labor movement generally started um, in 2000 when I got, uh, got a job at the phone company and became a CWA member. And from there, um, became a chief steward and, and an executive board member and then was tapped to do external organizing. So uh, when I uh, left the phone company and came to the fire department. I already had uh, a pretty um, extensive, I guess you could say, um, organizing background in the private sector, and uh, yeah, and so it just made made sense when I got to the IFF to uh, um, you know turn that inwards and work on my own local, and and have been really fortunate to to be able to do work like this across across international. So, how many years have you been on the job? Sixteen. And how many years have you been a union officer? Uh, ten years. Ten years now. Yeah. And how long have you been the president? Uh, t- ten years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Full ten years. Yeah. yeah you've yeah. had quite a road. <laughs> <laughs> been a couple of years, and it's already taken years off my life. But <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, it's once again nice to have you here. So when our members and other individuals hear right-to-work states, can you kind of explain what that means? Yeah, so... You know, I guess the first thing I would say is that everybody's a right-to-work state now as a result of the Janus decision. Um, even states that have, you know, historically been strong union states or have strong collective bargaining laws like uh, California, I mean, at the end of the day, for public employees, as a result of Janus, you're a right-to-work state too. Um, the, I guess the distinction is, you know, you have places that maybe are more culturally right-to-work, <laughs> if you want to use that. You know, like culturally, I don't think California is a right-to-work state or, you know, someplace like New York or Massachusetts or, you know, these really, you know, um, kind of historically strong union states. Um, but everybody who's a public employee in the U.S. is right-to-work now as a result of Janus. Um, the distinction for parts of the South is, is that we don't have – um, in my state and in South Carolina, um, we don't have collective bargaining rights. So, um, in 1959, the North Carolina General Assembly passed, uh, 
General Statute 9598, which stripped public employees of collective bargaining rights. So it's illegal for us to enter in any kind of enter into any kind of written agreement with the, you know the municipality, the county, the state. And so, um, you know, I think some sometimes those things get uh, transposed, or, or you know, like people talk about them in the same way. Like right to work isn't really. Uh, you know, it's not the same as collective bargaining, right? So Florida's a right-to-work state. It was prior to Janus, but they have very strong collective bargaining laws. Um, Oklahoma's a right-to-work state. It was before Janus, um, but you have really, you know, good, solid union work that goes on in a place like Oklahoma as well. So I think, you know, there's a little bit of learning curve throughout the international that, that needs to, that probably needs to happen. Um, you know, right-to-work means that if there's a uh, union contract uh, in place at your at your, you know, at your department that, um, you don't have to be a member and you still reap the benefits of that, that, you know, the good work that the union does. Now there's different sort of, there's kind of window dressing in terms of like how the law is applied, um, uh, you know, different, differently throughout the States. Um, but that's really what, what right to work is. Um, so. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Cause it, it, it does get confusing. You're right. What, you know, a lot of people think right to work sometimes means you don't have any right to collective bargaining, but you just verified in the state of Florida there is collective bargaining. But in California, we've been pretty fortunate to have collective bargaining and the right to enter into contracts and sit down and meet and confer. Um, and, you know, until I started going to events in the international, you know, I didn't realize that in California, as fire service as a whole, we actually have it pretty good because of that. And then when I started out meeting People from the South and other states are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we don't have that. I got to fight for every little thing. And some of our members get comfortable in the fact that they have those rights and don't realize that a lot of people across the country don't have those rights. And so that's a perception from California and others. But for specific to Cal Fire, when you, you've been exposed to us several times now, but on the general group of people, uh, when they hear Cal Fire, what do they think of Cal Fire on the East Coast? I I would say that most people, just kind of generally speaking, when you think of Cal Fire, they think of, you know, wildland firefighters. They think of, you know, oh, that's where the ICS system comes from. Like, you know, they're always just fighting wildfires out there. And I don't think there's a lot of um, recognition or knowledge that, you know, Cal Fire has a, you know, pretty significant component of, uh, you know, what we would consider, you know, just like a municipal fire department that they're doing structural work, just like any other fire department throughout yeah. the country that doesn't have a, a wobbling component. So I think that's sort of the perception is that one, people know it's big and they just assume that, oh, they just fight forest fires and that's it. So. Yeah. And, and some of those um, areas on the East Coast, if When you go to negotiate a contract, I'm just trying to understand what collective bargaining means and what collective bargaining doesn't if you don't have it, right? So when we go to negotiate here a contract, the state of California for us, because of collective bargaining, has to sit down and we have to reach an agreement at some point in time and, and deal with it. And, and they are compelled to meet with us. When, when you don't have collective bargaining, is the entities compelled to meet with you for negotiations? No. No. So like in my, uh, in my city, there's nothing that no legal measure that compels, um, or forces, you know, the, the city to, 
discuss any issues of employment. Um, we do most of our work, all of our work, <laughs> through uh, political action. So um, tomorrow, you know, our city could say, all right, we're not going to deal with Local 947 anymore. We're not going to meet with you. Um, we're going to stop your dues deduction. We're going to, you know, like 947 is persona non grata. You're done. That's it. And there'd be no legal measure that we would have that could compel them to do anything otherwise. Um, just on a point, you know, like I mentioned the dues deduction, it took us a vote. It took us three years and a vote of the city council to a three-year campaign where we had petitions signed by the firefighters, by our members. Um, and it, you know, it was like a, a three-year effort just to get the city to deduct our union dues from our, from our paycheck. Um, and we pay them a thousand dollars a year for that service wow. to the city. So, I mean, something as simple as that that I think it's easy for folks in other places to take for granted. And like we had to, you know, we had to fight tooth and nail just to get that 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 simple, um, you know, logistical piece dealt with. Um, but there's nothing, there's nothing that legally compels our our city or cities in North Carolina to sit down and, and speak to any kind of employee group at all. Um, Again, we, we accomplish our work through building relationships with decision makers, uh, showcasing the value of resources that, you know, the IFF has that we can bring to the table, that we have that we can bring to the table. Um, so it's it's entirely based on the relationships we build and our political action and uh, being engaged in the political process at the local level. Yeah, that's, that's just amazing to hear because, like I said, before I started going as a young union officer to those um, IFF events and hearing that we thought everybody had that right. 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 And, and actually we thought that was an entitlement for lack of better words. And a lot of people today, especially the younger um, generation coming into the fire service, there's a, a, a thinks that's an entitlement that they're just, that's just what's going to happen. And we all know the ones that come, came before us fought for us to even have the right here in California to have collective bargaining. Um, so, I, you, you made an interesting comment in class the other day, and I, I kind of laughed at it because it's true. Because as I'm saying now, like, we just believed you guys were in the same boat as we are. Every fire service is the same. You're going to meet and have a contract, and, you know, you work out your contract. And and you guys thought, what did you think about California? <laughs> I mean, you know, like, it's the land of milk and honey, man, that yeah. they just give y'all stuff like it's Halloween candy. You know, like, oh, y'all, y'all want to raise? Great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just sit down and negotiate and, you know, come out of the, come out of the negotiating room like champions, you know, playing the Rocky theme or something. But um, as I've learned, um, that's, <laughs> that's actually not the case that, you know, while you guys obviously have um, some structural uh, legal components that make your work, I would say, you know, I feel pretty comfortable saying easier than our work yeah. <laughs> because you, you know, you have a seat at the table that is guaranteed by virtue of, you know, statute or ordinance. Um, you, you know, what I've learned is that y'all still have to, to fight for everything that you have, whether it's at the bargaining table or through political action and to, you know, to learn that, you know, there's Cal Fire firefighters riding one person on an engine company is like, shocking to me i'd never if somebody would have told me that out in the world i'd be like you're a liar there's no way yeah because um, you know my city is we're riding four on everything um and and some of that you know four on our ladder companies is because you know we engaged in political action and took the issue to the city council and won that um without a contract you know so 
I think our, you know, certainly in places like North Carolina or South Carolina or, you know, Georgia, um, when we look west and we see, you know, we see California, we just assume y'all just got it just the best there is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we just walk in and the in management and the policymakers just want to give us stuff, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't happen, right? And I, I think you said something very interesting is the only real difference is because of collective bargaining, they're compelled to meet with us. Mm-hmm. Just because they're compelled to meet with us doesn't mean anything's going to happen. And that's where union activism, like you said, politically lobbying, working with our policymakers to make them understand our jobs is really what gets things done. Right. And the only ultimate privilege is that they have to meet with us. It doesn't mean they have to do anything for us. It just says they have to meet with us. We can sit across the table and stare at each other all day long and nothing <laughs> goes along. And, and sometimes that's what happens, unfortunately, in negotiations. Um, so it does take that political activism to make things happen. And I, I believe, and I'll say this in that in California, we've gotten kind of lazy with that because they are compelled to meet with us. And so we've taken some things for granted uh, on our political action and getting involved. But even in um, our membership activism, explaining stuff to members, and that was one of the big reasons why you came out to speak to our union leadership on how we could communicate better and um, associate what we're doing and try to relate it to what they're thinking. I'm trying to explain it right. And, and come to an understanding of what the union is actually about. And I, I believe you may have that a, a little bit. And I'll say this in, in the opposite way. I believe you probably have that a little easier because your members have seen that they have to be involved to make things happen where ours over the years haven't had to be involved because there's this com- compelling to meet. And so I think that's where we can learn from your side of the country of what, what it takes to involve um, membership into things. So can you explain some of the things you guys do um, to communicate better with your membership and, and make them understand that they need to be involved to get everything that you guys have fought for over the years? Sure. And, and I guess the first thing I'll say is that as a, as an observer, you know, kind of broadly in the, um, in the IFF in the U.S., um, watching, you know, Friedrichs unfold, which was the precursor to Janus that, that, that failed after Scalia passed away, and then, you know, the Janus decision, um, when you look at the environments where there is, whether either, you know, compulsory membership or, you know, closed shop or fair share um, fees, you know, it's it was really... I kind of make the distinction I did it in the presentation yesterday is that it's easy when the firefighter is just compelled to either pay the fair share or join to talk about your union as if it's a, you know, in the same way that we would explain an insurance policy and kind of use the, you know, flow from progressive. Like, you know, I think it's easy for easy for your union work to fall in when you engage with new members uh, and, folks you're signing folks up it's easy to be like all right here's your insurance policy here's you know here's the contract here's the policies these are you know you just give them the package um and you don't really necessarily have to communicate in a way that builds loyalty not saying that you didn't because i actually think that uh, 2881 is 
been on the front end of this thing and you guys have been very thoughtful and deliberate both over Friedrichs and over, over the Janus decision. Um, but I think it's easy to um, just get folks to sign the paperwork and, you know, here's a contract, here's your policy, um, and then go about your merry way. Whereas we can't, we can't do that because obviously we don't have a contract. You know, mm-hmm. the contract, a union contract is the physical manifestation, right? It's a, a, you know, a booklet you can put your hands on. It's a physical manifestation of struggle and sacrifice by the firefighters that came before you, the union leaders that came before you. And when you don't have, when you don't have that to lean on, like in our case or in, in places in Georgia and South Carolina, you have to um, try to build loyalty through membership engagement and present your union. I call it, you know, instead of the flow from progressive model, I call it the Norma Ray model, calling back to the, you know, the famous labor movie, Norma Ray. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, some of the things that we've done is it uh, um, in, you know, in our recruit presentations, you know, we always talk about, all right, here's the tangible membership benefits, right? Here's, you know, our life insurance policy. Here's the McLennan scholarship through the IFF. Here's the discounted or free college benefit through Union Plus. Here's, you know, local 947's retirement benefit. We give them all the transactional benefits, right? The transactional benefits are you put dues in the union, your union's hands, and the, du- the union then provides you with these tangible benefits. But there's also the transformational component of it. So we got the transactional, and we really try to lead in our messaging to our members with the transformational piece, which is through our union, we can um, – build a better workplace. We can put structures in place that protect us and our families. You always know, say that, you know, think about the brotherhood or the sisterhood of the job. You got to have three things. You got to have organizational, uh, organizational structures in place before bad things happen. You have to have um, pulled financial resources and then you have to have boots on the ground, people who are accountable to the membership. And that's the brotherhood and sisterhood. If you don't have those things, you've just got a club. Um, and so when we message to our members, um, we message that big idea that like, you know, everybody wants to be a part of something that's good, and your union is what's good. Your union is what um, will, you know, we have a member with a sick child. We're the ones that are going to be doing the fundraiser for that that family. If you, we have a member who, uh, um, you know, either themselves or a close family, family members in the hospital, we're the ones that, that are doing the meal rotation for the family there. Um, you know, we're active in our, our community. Um, so we really rely on communicating the value of our union through um, the collective action component, that working together we can do more through our union than we can as individual employees. And then, so we, like that's our sort of ideology, um, is it? look, we can make the economic case for union membership, you know, every day of the week and twice on Sunday, but come with us. We're planting a flag. Come with us and work on these issues that impact you and your family. And so, that's what our communications to our members are, are like. And that's, you know, and we really try to communicate um, really heavily um, when we, you know, we're just looking at signing up new recruits. We don't view that as just like, all right, you make the presentation one time and that's done. We view it as a campaign. So we're seeing them before the sign up date in sort of informal capacity. We have the formal presentation and then at, at career benchmarks, we're also there. So they, you know, they take the probationary test. We're there with, you know, pizzas and soda at the end of the test saying, Hey, congratulations. Great job. When they take their firefighter two test, 
same thing. Um, when our members are going through a promotional process for company officer, we hold um, pretty rigorous mock assessments for them. So every time there's a benchmark in their career, we try to we try to insert ourselves in that benchmark and be of be of value either through you know recognition and support or giving them tools to succeed. So um, that's really I think how we have viewed our our work over the years. Yeah, how many members are in your union? We have five hundred seventy members. Yeah, so you, have, you have quite a bit. You yeah, yeah. You know, w- one of our biggest struggles is um, since we are such a statewide organization with over six thousand plus members, um, we can't be so hands on, so to say. But we do have local chapters that we're trying to get more involved, hands on, in some of the stuff you're explaining, and we do do a lot of those things that you you discussed. Um, with it and you know we've been trying all different avenues to communicate with our members the podcast being the latest and greatest i think what i see as a problem and i want to know if you guys are seeing it on in your area compared to here in california and it may be because of our strong collective bargaining rights that it's created the problem is we have a lot of young guys coming on to the job that don't see or even understand the benefit of the union as a whole anyway, because they've never been exposed to it as in their life, right? What a union is, why you need a union. But they come on and they believe that um, everything they've got, management just gave them. And what does the union do? And they don't see the benefits like you explained to what the union does and has to, and we try to explain that. Do you see that with the young group coming on today in your area? trying to explain union activism as a whole to them? I, I think it's always, um, I think for us, North Carolina has, basically we trade off the lowest union density with South Carolina. You know, every year when the Bureau of Labor Studies puts a report out about union density, like it's either North Carolina or South Carolina that are in the, the bottom percentage. Mm-hmm. So we really are, we're always operating in that, that, you know, a lot of times uh, when we get, you know, a, a recruit class, typically the only folks who have had any union experience are those who have been in the fire service previously and have been a member of another I, IFF local, or maybe they worked at like, you know, UPS you know, that was represented by the Teamsters. Um, so we, we, we always, you know, because of the lack of density in our state, always have a huge learning curve with just basically the concept of, of what a union is. And it's then com- compounded by the, you know, again, that we, don't have collective bargaining rights so it'd be easy to you know in my mind i think you know it's easier to be like hey here's your union we go and negotiate this contract for you and and that's sort of like the traditional you know view of unions and you know you can see that sort of reflected poorly in pop culture at times yeah so there are those benchmarks about that but um we always see that um but i think it's you know for us the way we view it it's it, it is we um you know, this is how we, we always say you got to meet the, you know, meet, meet the member or the potential member where they're, where they're at, both physically um, and where they're at in relation to what their idea or beliefs are about unions um, are to begin with. So, you know, we got to go insert ourselves and have those, um, those conversations. And, you know, I think our success around our membership density and the success that have that that the iff has seen in the south um over the last three four years uh, where we've had you know a little bit over a uh, 
close to a 40% increase in, in union membership in the South is because we put organizers on the ground and went and had one-on-one, one-on small group conversations at firehouse kitchen tables and, and really, you know, thought about, um, considered thoughtfully how we could make better recruit presentations. And um, so the short answer is, yeah, we see that, but it's just a fact of life for us is that, you know, nobody, you know, any, anybody's sort of conception of a union in North Carolina oftentimes is, I mean, I was joking about it the other day in class is, you know, the Irishman on Netflix or something like, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe they, you know, saw Hoffa on PBS or uh, TBS or something. Yeah. Uh, another thing are, are young guys coming in. Um, I, I guess they, they, they don't like the union uh, for is, is because of our political activism. And so on the West Coast, at least specifically with Local 2881, we try to explain to all our members is we're here for, you know, working conditions, benefits, and wages, right? And, and all that other social views and stuff like that is really not why we're here. And, you know, gun rights, hunting, abortion, all that stuff is, is not why we're here to get involved in those conversations. Um, do you get that same pushback from some of your members on the East Coast that why is the, why is the union you know involved even though we know we're not really involved in that but do you get that same kind of comments made on the East Coast by your membership oh absolutely absolutely I mean I think um, and I think I would I would say my opinion is is that broadly the, the IFF membership is grappling with that throughout the country mm-hmm. um, but absolutely I mean I think what we've learned is that you know, we, we work really hard to try to communicate, hey, these are the, this is the narrow scope of issues that we're solely looking at with, with elected officials, you know, wages, hours, working conditions, you know, health insurance, retirement, um, safety, staffing, et cetera. Like those are the, that's the narrow lane that we're, we're asking them questions about. Um, and that's what we're basing our endorsement on. But the reality of it is, is that, that all of us um, are very few people are single issue voters. Yeah. I mean, uh, our members, broadly speaking, I think, you know, are, are more than the sum of just being a firefighter and IFF member. And the reality is, is that um, they make decisions on who to vote for based on issues outside of their employment. That's just a reality. Yeah. And I think we've got a, it's, it's incumbent upon us as union leadership at the local level, certainly to, figure out ways to have those conversations and say, look, you know, I'm not telling you who to vote for by virtue of your membership. You have empowered me and and given me the responsibility to go out and figure out who the the best elected officials are um, that are going to support the issues that impact you and your safety and your family and your wallet. Um, I'm just telling you based on this narrow scope of parameters, who supports these issues. I'm not telling you, you have to go out and vote for them, but I'm telling you like, this is, we, we've done, you know, at, at my local, we do, you know, pretty significant vetting of the candidates with questionnaires and follow-up interviews, et cetera. And, um, you know, like, it, it, this is who is supporting these issues. And if you, you vote for them, then that's great. We've, give, we've done our due diligence. Um, but I think it's something that we're all grappling with in the IFF right now. Uh, you know, I, I think you hit that right, right on the head because – we, I, I try to say the same thing is I don't stand over you when you go to the voting booth. You're going to vote for who you vote. And at the end of the day, 
who we end up supporting could be Republican, Democrat, independent, as long as they support our movement. And of course, we can never guarantee what that policymaker is going to do once they get into office. We right. can just go off the best information we have at the time we're, we're doing that vetting process, right? And, and I know for me, and I want to find out from you, being a union president at this day and age in the world and the total different views of the um, personalities and public on different issues and social views, it's becoming very hard to even separate my own views from my presidency and union activism, you know, and it's hard, I'm sure, and I'm not going to speak for you. I'll let you answer it for yourself. But for me, it's really hard to look a politician into an eye that I know maybe doesn't support the way I see social views. But at the end of the day, that's not why we're put into our positions. We're put into our positions to achieve the best deal and contract and benefits that we can for our membership. Are you finding it difficult in that way as a union president too? I have made peace with that a long time ago. <laughs> and and I will tell, you know, my members, like, there are people that you've seen me shake hands with and take pictures and smile with that um, I that I can't stand, yeah. that is to the polar opposite of my personal beliefs. But I do, you know, I just, maybe it's like the firefighter thing, you compartmentalize stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I made peace with that a long time ago. I have... I know that as we, you know, entering into an election cycle that like we're going to endorse Republicans, we're going to endorse Democrats. And so that means that we're going to make every, you know, <laughs> we're going to make all, everybody in the membership uncomfortable or, you know, give them heartburn about some endorsement every election cycle because we're issues driven bipartisan. You know, that's our philosophy as, as it is the IFS philosophy. You know, we're not supporting any one political party, but I think for us, since the, Political action is such um, an important component to how we um, move the ball downfield on issues that impact our members that a long time ago I was like, all right, well, you know, I need this person's vote and I can't stand them. So, you know, I'm just going to put on my big boy pants and um, go out and do what I have to do for my members because they've empowered me to and, and entrusted me to to go speak on their behalf on the issues that, that impact them on a, you know, a job that's difficult and dangerous and long hours, et cetera. So now I, I've, I've made peace with that a long time ago. <laughs> I, I'm still trying to make peace with that because <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, some of these people I wouldn't go drink coffee with, yeah. you know, I wouldn't break bread with. Um, but it's kind of like the, what I don't know the exact saying, I'll probably say it wrong, the, the bed friends or whatever it is. The oh, strange yeah. People strange we bedfellows, yeah. Yeah, bedfellows that we have to get in bed with to – um, make things happen for the good of all. And I'm still struggling with that because it's it's hard for me to look someone in the eye that I totally disagree with 100% on what maybe their social views are. But at the end of the day, if they're telling me they're going to support our benefits, our wages, our working conditions, and our retirement, then that's, like you said, that's the vote we need. Yeah. Especially when here in California for Cal Fire, we're dealing with about 134 legislators. And, um, hmm. it, it's very difficult. And I don't think the membership sees that, you know, even from any union officer, not just from the president's, but any union officer that has to take that responsibility on, they may not 
love the person they're dealing with. (laughs) But like you said, they got to put their big boy pants on, put a smile on their face, comb their hair and, and shake that hand and afterwards go wash it several times. (laughs) But you know, well, and that's, you know, I've even had members that have said, I can't believe you, you know, like I can't stand that elected official. How can you deal with them? And and it's, you know, I don't, I don't like them either, but I don't need friends. I got, you know, 500 friends that I work with. I need votes. And, you know, for our city council, for instance, I just, we have nine members. I need five votes. Uh, like, that's all I need. I, I'm not, we're not spending, you know, we're not braiding each other's hair. We're not spending holidays yeah. together. <laughs> I just need, I just need this person to vote on this issue that impacts you right now. Yeah. So, and, and I think the other thing too is that I guess maybe what's made me uh, at peace with that is like, all right, there's some shared values here. If we're talking with them and we're working with them on an issue that impacts our members, that's actually a shared value. Yes. Um, so, you know, maybe that's just what makes me feel better, but <laughs> I, I, no, that's, you know what? And that's a, that's a good way to look at it. Cause I don't look at it that way sometimes. And maybe I need to learn, you know, to look at that, but you've been a president for 10 years. I'm going on my third year. So <laughs> I got, I got a little growing to do and, and learning how to do that because I, I think what a lot from our group, what I get from the field is, is that exact thing? Like, why, why are you dealing with that guy? Well, cause that's the guy that's going to get your retirement. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, that's a that's a common goal. So I, I guess I could look at it that way too. As long as you and but like I said, at the end of the day, because unfortunately here in California, we've had several governors say they're going to do something, and on the way out the door, don't do it. Yeah, and that makes it even more difficult to explain to the membership why we why we got in bed with the guy, you know, because he told us one thing and did the opposite. But we'll never know that. We don't have crystal balls. We'll never right. know what they're actually going to do. All we can do is, like you said earlier, off the best information we have at that time as we're vetting the process. And we do the same thing we vet. We have a very strong legislative advocate group that helps us vet that. And then along with the California professional firefighters, we vet alongside them. So there is a really good vetting process in California when we pick a, someone we're going to support. But like at the end of the day, you never know what someone's going to do, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's where I'm still bitter about a lot of things. And when I look <laughs> at someone like you're, you're smiling and you're licking your lips, you're lying to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, uh. a good, you know, we, we've had that at home um, yeah. back in, I guess it was 2008, 2010, when the uh, Public Safety Employer Employee Cooperation Act, you know, the, 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 the bill that would have ostensibly granted collective bargaining rights to all public safety employees throughout the U.S. Um, we needed, uh, I think we needed two cloture votes for that. And it came down to senators from North Carolina uh, and Virginia. And the senator from North Carolina, um, you know, I, I worked in a firehouse that was her house, her home was in our first due for seven years. Uh, you know, I, I worked there. And so I'd go to her house on fire alarms and, you know, and, you know, the IFF endorsed her, um, you know, they brought the, you know, did, did, did a full statewide campaign for her, gave her a pretty significant PAC contribution. And all she had to do was vote for cloture for the bill. And then she turned around and, you know, took our PAC money and, um, and voted against cloture. Like it described exactly what you said over the, over the key issue for us, the key issue for us. Um, so, um, I, unfortunately can sympathize with that. And, yeah. you know, and at that point we went on a campaign just to, you know, discredit her among organized labor in our state. And, uh, you know, she was, you know, not reelected a second term. And yeah. So, yeah. but 
That's the work, right? Like yeah. that's the chance you take. Well, and that's the uh, the legislative political action that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, we may get them in the office, but we can also remove them from office just as fast. Yeah, you know, if they don't do what what we were promised or told they were going to assist us with. Um. So, before we start trying to wrap this up, I have a couple other things because you know, I talked to you last night about what kind of benefits you guys have at retirement and stuff. And a lot of our membership, I believe has gotten comfortable. I'll use that word with the retirement system we have and the benefits we have because um, they're more of a defined benefit in California and we're more secured with our CalPERS systems. And you may know we went through a, a retirement legislative a few years called PEPRA where the 3% at 50s had to go to the 2% at or the 3% at 55 and then to the 2.7 at 57. Um, that was crammed down our throat by the legislators of the state of California. What is your post-retirement benefits in way of salaries and medical and stuff on the East Coast and in your state where you don't have, like you said, it's a contract where you have to basically fight every inch for? Yeah. So, um, for us, um, in North Carolina, retirement is full retirement is 30 years at age 55. So you got to do 30 years on the job, um, at 50, 52%. Um, and then in my city, um, there's no, um, no retiree healthcare benefit. So, um, I mean, so this won't be, this won't be a long conversation cause we don't, yeah. <laughs> we don't have a lot well, to talk about. Yeah. And I think that's where I kind of, I kind of want to go because like I said, I think our guys have gotten comfortable with some of the things that the union and unions as a whole have achieved over the years. And especially here in California. Um, and we do have a pretty substantial retirement system in California for a lot of the local government fire departments besides ours. But for, Cal Fire Local 2881 members, you know, you say you don't have post-retirement medical. What does that mean? That means that comes out of your pocket, yep. right? Yep. Where we have post-retirement medical. And they pay, you know, 80% of it, up to 80% of the cost of post-retirement medical. Um, it's 100% for some before the PEPRA laws came in the change and changed all that. But um, even 80% is something not out of their pockets. But that takes us unions to constantly fight to even keep that right um and then we pay into our post-retirement medical now we call it um um well we pay into post-retirement medical i forget the actual terminology to use and we pay 4.4 percent of our salaries into post-retirement medical but that makes it a defined benefit then in the state of california meaning that a legislator just can't wipe it with the slate of a pen and take it away from us so once again, collective bar bargaining and the rights we have in California make that stronger. Yeah. That once again, the unions fought for, you know. Um, so it's interesting because, like I said, we have a lot of members. And I'm sure you have it the same. And it's kind of like when I do these, and it's nice because I'm going to talk to a lot more presidents to see the the comparisons that we all have, just mm -hmm. at different levels, right? So I'm sure you hear the same thing. Like they just don't understand that that you know a lot of places don't have it as good as you think. You like to compare us to other people. And yeah, you can take the ones that have the, the golden spoon or the platinum spoon in their mouth and compare us to them, but then look at the other end of it, the ones that don't have all that and, and see where we sit. And we really don't have it that bad um, because of 
what unions have done, you know. Um, so it's just interesting. That's why I wanted to ask, you know, because yeah. some of our members don't, they don't know that. And, and be honest with you, when, before I started going to IFF events, I didn't really realize it either. I came on the job. I got this. I signed up. This is what you get. Cool. Yeah. You know, cool. I got it. Good deal. You know, okay. Well, what did it take <laughs> to get it? And what did it take to keep it? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'm learning very well what it takes to keep it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> being, being a union president and stuff like that, because it's not easy to keep what we have, you know, and fight for. And then to see other um, departments and other states have to even fight to get to where we got, you know, it is incredible. Um, so I want to, I want to end on this note because really what you came out to teach our class about is membership, activism, and labor, the labor movement as a whole. And, and you, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of people, not just in the fire service that came before us to get us to where we are today. And, and you did a lot of great presentations on that. And one of the ones that I know you and I related to was the coal miners. And, and I believe that one to me hits me the most because those were individuals to actually willing to die or the belief of a union and take on in a war, a little yeah. mini war yeah. shooting, you know, mm -hmm. shooting against the, the armed Pinkertons and stuff that they went to go against them and not allow a union. And I just wish, you know, it's a struggle, but it's, you know, what we take on as union officers, I just wish we can find a way to relay that, to the membership as a whole and the younger group coming in because I could tell you in California, just like I said, when I came on the job, it was there and I didn't know what it took to get there. But I definitely know what it takes to keep it. Right. You know, yeah. and how, how to get there, you know, and, um, it's just interesting to see the struggles on the two different sides. And I want our members to understand that, everybody's having struggles and not everybody has the golden spoon or platinum spoon in their mouth and getting stuff like you guys thought we just had <laughs> streets of gold here and you walk in and oh here have this have that <laughs> it's like a smorgasbord of whatever you want right well the yeah the retirement plan you just described to me sounds pretty sweet <laughs> yeah but i mean you know your point is well taken is that it's again i'll go back to that single single firefighter engine company that's operating you know it's like un unheard of in, in, in my city for that to be the case. Yeah. But I think, you know, we talk about the, the history component of this and what we talked about in, in the class yesterday was, you know, there's been a deliberate and thoughtful um, campaign to erase things, you know, like the Battle of Blair Mountain and the, you know, the, the coal wars, the coal mine wars that, that you were talking about. Um, you know, it's like the Battle of Blair Mountain was the largest armed insurrection in the U.S. outside of the Civil War. We had 10,000 Union miners um, in, you know, 1921. Um, 10,000 Union miners, black, white, native-born, and immigrant marching, um, you know, with with arms to go free Union brothers who had been um, uh, imprisoned for trying to organize a, uh, you know, try to organize a, a UMWA local and trying to, you know, strike and, um, better their, their living conditions, you know, in, in, in a company town. And, um, you know, that's, a. it's just, it's not a history that is taught. It's not labor broadly. It's not a history that's taught, uh, in, in, you know, our, our public schools, the battle of how, if there is something in a, um, 
you know, public education textbooks that gets taught. Typically, it, we, we see that it is um, overly critical or of unions or just focus on the negative, you know, the, you know, strikes and quote unquote unnecessary violence, et cetera. Um, we don't see unions reflected positively in mass media. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Like the continuing decrease in, you know, the corporate, the number of corporations that own and control mass media, you know, they, you know, it's not in their best interest to have, um, you know, the populace understanding unions and, and their own workforce understanding unions and, and how they work and collective bargaining. So it definitely is a, an uphill battle because, uh, you know, you don't see a lot that is positively reflected always about unions in, you know, the public, the public discourse. And so as somebody, new 18 year old kid comes on the job at, at Cal Fire and again, they've got no, no context for, as you were saying, like, the fact that everything, you know, that they've got somebody, when they're walking in the door, everything they got, somebody else want it for them. And if we don't do a good job as, as labor leaders um, in trying to educate folks from day one, you know, that this is about, you know, a movement. It's about a movement for, um, broadly speaking, for working families, but more specific to us, it's a movement to um, for firefighters to build working conditions that, you know, are safe and equitable and, and we can retire in dignity. Um, and it takes work to do that. And it takes, you know, a lot of people doing a lot of work over a long period of time to, to move that ball downfield in a significant way. And so, you know, it's just, it's incumbent upon us because nobody else is going to do it, right? We already talked about it. Public school is not going to do it. Mass media is not going to do it. Pop culture, movies aren't going to do it. Like we have to be the ones to go and, and provide these resources to our, to our members. Um, and, you know, support those institutions like the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum and Make One West Virginia. Um, you know, the for me, the Southern Labor Studies Association, like support those institutions and entities that are uh, providing resources to labor leaders on, you know, how we communicate and what we communicate to our members about about our own history as working people. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, nobody else. Nobody else is going to do it but us. <laughs> There is definitely a well-organized effort to do away with unions in the United States, I believe. Yeah. And what that causes is a lot of us officers and unions, and when I say officers, we're the ones that are elected to speak for them, but the union is the membership as a whole, of yeah. course, as we all understand, to to focus our efforts to keep union membership which then takes away time and effort to fight for what we need. And so we're really starting to fight on two fronts. One, with our own in-house, with our own members, trying to keep them understanding why we're here, and then fighting for their rights on the other side. So it's really, especially for us, starting to stretch us thin. Yeah. You know, and what I try to tell people is, hey, you know, and Cal Fire, just so you know, we probably have like 223 union officers but 150 of them that actually probably do a lot of work. And if they expect 150 people to change the state of California, then they're going to be waiting a long time. And we need our full membership engaged with us so we can focus our full attention on achieving what they want us to achieve, what they've charged us to achieve for them. Yeah. But like you said, put their trust in us to achieve for them. But we're just 
we're just men and, and our, you know, we're just people ourselves and we can only do so much. Um, so it's, it's hard. I mean, it's really getting hard and it's nice to hear and, and understand other people's point of views. And, and it actually refocuses me on, you know, what we really have, you know, and, and like you said, the men, the men and women that came before us to achieve it. Um, so we have a lot. I, I can tell you, Dave, I, I really appreciate you coming out this week because actually I've learned a lot from you too. You've given me a couple of new ideas to kind of look at to try to get out there to our membership better so we're not fighting with them and we can focus more on what we need to. Um, so I just want to thank you again for taking the time to fly out and spend it with our leadership here in Sacramento and, and giving us a different insight to things. So thank you very much for coming out, Dave. No, thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come out here and, you know, I'd be remiss to not, you know, thank, uh, thank the new general president, Ed Kelly and the new GST, Frank Lima for their, you know, support and, and, and me coming out here in this effort. Um, I got to say you have, um, a great operation. I mean, the, what the communications that you have with your, uh, the methods of communication, you know, you have with your membership, I mean, the, you had the monthly, uh, monthly emails, the, the, the magazine, you know, your social media presence, like, uh, you guys are doing uh, really good work. And like I said, I commend you on, you know, being, being one of those locals that are, uh, progressive and forward thinking about, uh, specifically these issues and, you know, in the context of Friedrichs to Janice to now. So, um, I, you know, thank you so much for the hospitality. I've had a great time and, and you got some, some sharp folks in your organization. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for another episode of Going Direct. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to Greensboro, North Carolina, local 947 President Dave Coker for sitting down with us and having a candid conversation about union activism and member engagement. You can learn more about the West Virginia Mine Wars with Dave on the March episode of the IAFF podcast. Make sure to hit that follow button so you stay up to date on new episodes. If you have any questions that you'd like President Edwards to answer on a future episode, send us an email through our website at calfirelocal2881.org.